Say the word compassion. What do you think of? Oh, when I hear someone say you have a lot of compassion, I think that that just blasted their heart out of their ribs. Because I feel like when someone says that, that you have a lot of hopefulness in your life, that that is never going to fade away. That's going to stick with you forever. Can you give me an example of being compassionate to someone? <laughs> like, uh, um, be nice. Like, I sometimes help my mom with the baby. Yeah? Yeah, and it, it really helps her while she's cooking. Who is the most compassionate person that you know? Your teacher? What what are some things that your teacher does that are compassionate? Uh, today was my first day of school and she gave us fudge pops. That sounds like a really nice teacher. Mm -hmm. Kind stuff. I think that. Being kind? Maybe that's a little bit. Yeah, I think you're right. I think compassion means like giving up things that you like that you that you love and give it up to others that's cool give me an example of compassion um compassion the people in the army and the navy who are risking their lives for our freedom i love that i was thinking about that earlier today actually where yep. so was i yeah like um You can bring my dishes to the sink. You can bring dishes to the sink? Mm -hmm. What are some other nice what are some nice things that you could do for daddy? Mm, I don't do anything for him. What do you th <laughs> That's really funny. Don't do anything for him. Nick's just got a way of doing that, isn't he? Uh, if you went here last week, I've got a nickname for him. It's called the Baconator. And um Bacon in paradise and all that. Welcome, everyone. Glad you're here. My name's Craig. I get the privilege of just navigating us through week two of our series entitled All Due Respect, looking at what happens when my views clash with yours. And we're saying that on nine occasions in the New Testament, Jesus was embroiled in a culture war. He was embroiled in an either-or choice that we find ourselves embroiled in in this nation and indeed in this world today. And today we want to focus on the whole idea of compassion, showing God's heart, even though we may take a different stance on certain issues. And the message today is entitled, Fault Finding and Finger Pointing. Now, to begin, I just want you to know that uh, 24 years ago today, Vipka and I said, I do, in the courthouse, in uh, the courthouse in Lurach, in Germany. It's our legal wedding anniversary. <laughs> now, the funny thing with this is, if you were to ask us, hey, when we're married, you know, you've got to fill in the forms, when were you married? We always put down the 25th of September because that's when we were married in the church. And in Germany, you're legally married in the courthouse, and then you're, if you're a Christian, you go to the church afterwards, usually the next day. For some people, it can even be after that. So we get in trouble because we put down the 25th. But actually, it was 20, 
four years ago today, actually around this time, that Vipka and I were married. And uh, so for 24 years, this Welsh guy and that German lass have been trying to figure out how we're gonna do life as a third culture family. It's been stressful at times, the early years were fun, but one of the most humorous uh, issues, at least for Vipka, it wasn't very funny for me, this was a big issue for me, was tackling the issue of over or under. You know what I'm on about? Over or under? Over the roll or under the holder? Now, if you're an over the roll type person, put up your hands for me. Yes, see, you guys got it right. If you're an under the holder person, would you dare put up your hand? (laughs) They are under. You know, this thing has frustrated me. In fact, Dwayne Dreher, operation staff, I have a bathroom in my office, and I go in there, and one of them's over, and one of them's under. (laughs) Over the roll. And uh, it's been really funny having that conversation. I would go to Vipka and I'd say, hey, hon, can you do me a favor? Can you put, put it over the roll? And she says, why? Over the roll with young kids means over the floor. Right, moms? So if you put it under, it's harder for them to get less on the floor. I said, that may be true, but the solution to this is actually for you to stick to the way that this was designed. I mean, seriously, I was so frustrated with this. I actually looked up the original patent for the toilet roll holder. Okay, and it's over. Okay, it's over. And I said, "Hun, the, the solution to this is not to, you know, to switch it. The solution to this is get the kids to do it right. She was like, Craig, come on. And I said, look, you drive a car, right? You know that cars are designed to be driven on the road. You know that a four by four is designed to be driven off the road. Do you drive your car on the water? And she's like, Craig, come on. I say, no, seriously, you don't do it. Why don't you do it? Because it's not what they're for. Please, hon, help me out, put it over the roll. And she's still, sometimes to annoy me. Now, why does Vipka do that? Is it because she is a sinner, ignoring original design theory, all right? Or is it because some choices simply don't matter, right? Listen, more important than the position of the toilet paper is the accessibility of it. That it's reachable. That my kids get the opportunity to wipe off their dirt. Now, if I would nick the Baconator, I would have said that differently. (laughs) Some choices just don't matter. See, more important than our position on issues, and I'm going back to where we started last week, is our compassion for people. More important than our position on issues is maybe our position in Jesus. Because when we put our position on issues in front of our compassion for people, the heart of God for the world gets blocked. We have to realize that not every issue needs a position taken on it. Case in point, Golden State Warriors versus President Trump. I'm going to go there today. 
Steph Curry came out and said, I'm not going to go to the White House. President Trump says, good, I ain't, none of you are coming. And now even King James himself, and I'm not talking about the version of the Bible, okay, now comes out with this and said, well, it was always good to go there until you came on the scene. So if somebody says to you, hey, where do you stand on this? Some positions don't mean that we have to make a choice. Let everybody be childish. See, the key thing here is, in a culture war, we are forced into the either or. And what we discover is that over and over again, Jesus refuses the either or of the culture war and manages to find a way through it that reveals the Father's heart, his compassion for people. Jesus has a way of erasing the lines and from the famous like Nicodemus in John chapter three to the homeless that nobody would ever know about and everyone in between, Jesus manages to demonstrate the heart of God for a broken world without finding fault and without pointing fingers. He manages to do it. Because not every issue demands we take a position. Now, twice in the passage we're going to look at today, this is John chapter 9, twice in John chapter 9, we see different people being forced to take a position on the either war or of the culture war. Now, if you need a Bible, they're there on the racks, and if you grab one from the rack, it's page 1074. But twice in this passage, we discover people being forced to take a position in this culture war gripping the nation at this point in time. And on both occasions, they navigate their way through it. And I think we can learn lessons about this for the way that we need to respond today when people ask us to take a position on issues that don't really matter. But let's have a look at the text, shall we? We're gonna read John chapter nine. We're gonna actually read the whole thing for you to get a feel for the context. John chapter nine. As Jesus went along, he saw a blind man from birth and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Good job he didn't see it coming, right? Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. The said, his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that it was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash, and so I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been born blind. 
Now the day on which Jesus had made mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the, the Pharisees also asked him how he received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God and he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. They still did not believe that, he'd been, that he had been born blind and received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know that he is our son, the parents answered, and we know that he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he's of age, he's old enough, ask him. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become one of his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are the disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of, of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that this man had been thrown out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? Who is he? The man asked, tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment, I've come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what are we blind to? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. This is a fascinating passage that is built off the ideas presented in John chapter 8. And what's pretty clear here is that at the end of the passage, Jesus demonstrates the Father's compassion for hurting people. Jesus didn't open the eyes of the blind man to help him see spiritually and physically alone. He opened the eyes of his heart at the same time to help that man experience peace with God, salvation in its fullest sense. God's compassion is at the heart of this. And yet, as we navigated, navigated our way through the story, we saw two people being presented with either-or choices that are typical when a culture war ravages a nation. The first choice that I want to emphasize is the choice that the man is forced to make 
by the religious leaders where he is forced to pick a side. Pick a side. And in a culture war, what we recognize is that invariably what happens is that people are forced to pick their side. Whose side are you on? Pick your side. We see this in verse 22 and verse 28. I've summarized it here. They go to the parents. The parents are afraid of the Pharisees and the religious leaders knowing that they could be kicked out of the temple. And basically they say, hey, um, ask him. And then in verse 28, then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. What's interesting here is that the man is not yet a disciple of Jesus, is he? This blind man doesn't become a disciple of Jesus until after he's been kicked out of the temple. Please notice that. They take a position by forcing aside, assuming that this blind man was a follower of Jesus because he wouldn't answer in a way that suited them. But he didn't become a follower of Jesus until after he was kicked out. See, that man is forced to make a choice when really the choice wasn't necessary. The choice is this. Listen, guy, it's either Moses or Jesus. Take your pick. And what does he do? He doesn't take his pick. He just tells his story. What do they do? Kick him out then Jesus comes to him and said, do you believe in the Son of Man? The man says, show me and I'll believe in him. I am he. Then he worshiped him. See, a choice was enforced on this man before he was even ready to pick one. A choice was forced on the man when a choice between Moses and Jesus wasn't even necessary. You see, in forcing the man to choose, they were actually claiming that it was not possible to be a disciple of Jesus and a follower of Moses. It's either Moses or Jesus because it can't possibly be both. If you're mildly familiar with the New Testament, you know that that's not true. Firstly, for example, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. And if you pick up the sermon questions for this, you'll see all of these scriptures that I refer to today on, on the questions. But in Matthew 5, 17 through 20, Jesus says, listen, I have come and not one item of this law will actually be rejected. Not one item of the Mosaic law will be put away. I have come to fulfill it. So this idea that you can't follow Moses if you follow Jesus, it's not true, even on the basis of Matthew 5, 17 through 20. But more to the point, in John's gospel itself, in chapter 5, verse 46, Jesus says that Moses bears witness to Jesus. Jesus said, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. See, this idea that you have to choose between Moses and Jesus simply wasn't true. This is just two reasons why picking between Moses and Jesus wasn't necessary. But this is the way the culture wars work. Culture wars work by forcing people to pick sides. Pick your side. It's either Moses or it's Jesus. 
to reflect the heart and the compassion of God for the world, we must reject the idea that following Jesus always means that we have to pick a side. Listen, sometimes we don't. One way I get sucked into picking sides is whenever England play Germany in soccer at the World Cup. My English family and friends will say, hey, you're going for England, right? My German family and friends will say, hey, Craig, you're going for Germany, right? Now, it's always wiser to go with Germany. England don't win anything in soccer. But I just say, why do I need to make the choice? I am Welsh. And in case you don't know, I say Wales and England are two different places. I don't need to make the choice. Some choices, some sides, you just don't need to pick. Now, I've already demonstrated this folly by asking you, which way do you do your toilet roll? Now, the vast majority of people do it right. <laughs> but how many of you don't care which way you put your toilet roll? How many of you guys actually don't put it on the holder? <laughs> you just leave it on the top and you have somebody else to do the thing for you. We recognize that, look, this idea that we have to be forced to pick a side on everything is, is actually folly. We don't need to. I want to suggest to you that that's exactly the wisest thing to do and the wisest way to respond in many factors to what's happening in our nation right now. With the lines of battle being so clearly drawn, people are inviting us to pick a side. And the consequence of this is not that many of us are picking sides. The consequence of this is many of us are staying quiet. It's the rise in what we call a dissident culture amongst the church. In response to being forced to pick a side, the vast majority of everyday people take a step back and they close. Leading some people to say, hey, is it even possible to have a culture war when the vast majority of people in this culture are not even playing the game? In order to have a culture war, people need to be fighting. And the reality is the vast majority of people aren't. But yet, people on either side are. And they're trying to force us to pick a side. And on many things, the wisest thing to do is simply to tell our story. And so with all due respect, according to Jesus, we don't always have to pick a side. Prolonged debate, taking positions on everything, don't help people find access to the hope and life of Jesus. More often than not, they make it more difficult. We don't give this nation a chance to wipe off their dirt and find peace with God when we argue about positions. We just make it harder. Now, we demonstrate God's heart for this nation when we refuse to pick sides on every issue and we show compassion to the homeless, to the famous and to everyone in between. And so the first lesson we discover from John 9 about navigating our way through the culture war is, listen, you don't have to pick a side every single time. In fact, sometimes it's the wisest thing in the world for you not to. 
in fact, not picking a side actually reveals the heart of God more often than not. So this man is forced to pick a side, either Moses or Jesus. And anyone familiar with the text will realize that there were a number of Pharisees who were also followers of Jesus. Now, the second person who's asked to pick a side here is Jesus himself. But it's a subtle difference here. Right at the start of the chapter, the disciples ask Jesus to pick the sinner. The way the culture wars work is on the first instance, they ask us to pick a side. Who are you with, Moses or Jesus? Who are you with? Do I go there, blue or red? Right? Who are you? Michigan, Michigan State, right? Pick your side. It's amazing. When we were in Germany preparing to move to the States, we were, we were sent over packages around Christmas time. We were moving in January. You thought, this is really generous. And we opened up all the packages, and they were um, the Gators and the Knolls. And I'm looking at this going, what's this? College football. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. They don't pick sides over this as well, do they? But you do. In addition to picking sides, though, there's also this idea of choosing the sinner or the saint. Who's right and who's wrong? Sometimes the choice is, hey, pick your side. Other times it's, okay, who do you think is right? You know that they're wrong, don't you? And we see that in the text too, don't we? Right there in verse 2. And I want you to note who asked the question. It's the religious people. It's actually more than that. It's the people who follow Jesus. Could it be that Christians are more tempted to point fingers than we are to find faults? Hey, we all know we've got junk, right? Grace, the sin is the great leveler here. We're thankful for the grace of God. And hey, we delight in the fact that God makes a message out of my mess. And we're really good with that. So we, maybe we'll be slow to judge. But are we pretty quick to point fingers maybe? Find wrong? Point at people's sin? Rather than look for our own? Look at what they say. They say to him, Rabbi, who sinned? His parents? Or him? Jesus Look at, this, look at this man over there. God, he's messed up. He's begging on the side of the road. He didn't have to be there, Jesus, did he? It's a sin to put him there. And you can imagine someone saying, well, maybe it wasn't his sin. Maybe it was his parents. Common belief of the day. Jesus, pick the sinner for us. Look at Jesus' response. Verse 3, neither this man nor his parents sinned. What happens next in the NIV in a number of translations I don't actually like. They translate it this way because it's based on the Greek and the Greek translated into the English. You've got to make a decision about where something called the Hina, H-I-N-A, clause comes. This clause, is, it's used many times. It's a purpose clause in order that, okay? And sometimes this clause can point backwards or it can point forwards. The NIV has decided that Jesus' answer makes the verse point backwards, the clause point backwards to the man's sin, to the man's blindness. So when he says, look, neither this man nor his parents, they insert the clause right here to point back 
to his blindness. So in other words, listen, it wasn't the man that sinned. It wasn't even his parents that sinned. It was actually God choosing to make this man blind in order for his, God's glory to be seen through what I'm about to do. Now, we're living in reformed heartland, right? Everybody knows that God has the right to do whatever God wants to do. But I'm just going to be honest here and say this interpretation is unnecessary. And honestly, I have a problem with a God who would actually inflict punishment on someone in order to show that he's glorious. I got a problem with that. But it's unnecessary. We don't need to do that. Because in many times in John, the clause actually points forward. It doesn't point back to the man's blindness. Jesus says, look, neither of them. You guys are thinking about this wrong. But God sent his son in order that through these miracles, people would see the light of day in the heart of God for a lost world. Church, the way that this is translated here, I've got a problem with it. It's unnecessary. Jesus' answer says, look, neither. You, you guys delight in picking sinners. You know what God does? God delights in sending his son. And today I want to say this. It is so easy for us in a messed up world to go out there and start looking for sinners. But what God wants is to keep sending his sons and his daughters. That's what God wants. But again, in a culture world, what will we do? We will often ask ourselves, who is right and who is wrong? So the choice here is, hey, either this man or his parents. And our response to that is to say, no. No, Jesus doesn't allow us to point the finger. And as I said last week, whenever we point the finger at someone, we remember that there are three pointing back at us. This, this points out, these two issues, pick your side, pick your sinner, point out that there is a real danger in a culture war for the Christian, for the church, to get caught into what is called fixed category thinking. It's the tendency for us to think in rigid, fixed ways with regards to what I need to do, my personal responsibility, and what we need to do, our personal responsibility. And what we will do is we will stick down, we will hunker down in a certain category, we will paint the lines, and those people that agree with us will dare in, and those people who don't agree with us will dare out. But there's a problem with this. The problem with this is when we think in fixed ways like this, the people who are not in there with us, well, they're the sinners, obviously, just like these people, right? They're, they're the ones that are wrong, and we're the ones that are right. And invariably, when we're doing this, we're making a great big mistake, and the text shows us this because, here's the deal. When we draw a line and everybody who agrees with us is in a little box with us and we're looking at people who disagree with us, invariably what happens is that the lines we draw to keep people in and keep people out are never as strong as we think they are. And if we don't take a step back and think about this objectively, we'd see it. But see, the problem when we draw lines like this is not objective, it's emotive. It's emotional. If you go back at the text, you will look that the Pharisees draw this line because they think differently to Jesus on one issue, verse 16. If you have a look at verse 16, they take issue with this because Jesus heals the man on the Sabbath. 
he can't be a righteous guy because, hey, the bottom line is we don't know where he comes from. They knew he was from Nazareth. What are they saying there? Jesus said, I have been sent from God. I come from God. We don't know where he comes from. We don't know whether this guy really is a prophet of God sent from God or not. Okay? They know he came from Nazareth. But they don't know who this guy is. And what they know is, hey, he's teaching, they think, something very different to them. They've drawn this line that basically says, Jesus is wrong because he doesn't think like me on this issue. And they force the issue on a single issue. And if they would have thought about it, this is really short-sighted. Listen, if you are passionate about an issue, it is possible for your passion about an issue, any issue, to make you blind about the real issue. Let me give you an example. Spring break this year. It's like a Monday, Tuesday evening. We're getting ready to go away on vacation. So it's about the week, week before. And I called the kids. I think it was to come for dinner or something like that. And they were playing their electronics. And they just didn't put it down. Any parent, you got a problem with kids not putting electronics down. Right? And I'm like, hey guys, I've called you twice. Don't let me do it a third time because if I call you a third time, you will not have your electronics for the entire week until after the weekend. Right? That seemed really good to me. Either or. Either you put it down or you don't have them. This is an issue. And it was an issue to me because I'm frustrated. I say it once is enough. Right? Not three times. Vipke looked at me and in German, okay. You really didn't think that through, did you? I'm like, what do you mean? She said, you know, I fly to Florida tomorrow. You actually blessed me with a flight to Florida. I'm taking Jordan. Do you really want to be in the car on your own with kids for 23 hours without any electronic distraction? (laughs) Do you really want to do that? I quickly said, hey, kids, I'm sorry for being a little bit, right? I I backed up. Why? Because I was short-sighted. If you're passionate about an issue, it is possible for you to draw a box that you think is really strong, and then all you need is someone like a Vipka to come along and help you see the stupidity of your ways. (laughs) You see this in the text with the Pharisees. You see, Jesus actually agreed with the Pharisees on a whole host of issues. The resurrection... Sadducees didn't believe in it. The Pharisees did. What about the balance between the sovereignty of God and human responsibility? Guess what? Jesus thinks like me. No, Jesus actually thought like the Pharisees and against the Sadducees. I can keep going. But there was this one issue that they were really ticked about because it was really important to them. And so they draw this box and everybody who agrees with Jesus can't be like them. But unfortunately, there were many people in the Pharisees who agreed with Jesus on the interpretation of the Sabbath. So my point is this. The problem with fixed category thinking is we can actually think that people out there are so different to us when in fact they're not. Any of you see the pro-Trump rally and uh, with Black Lives Matter turning up in Washington, D.C. last weekend? Any of you see that on the news? That was interesting, wasn't that? You got the president of Black Lives Matter turning up at a pro-Trump rally. And if you think I'm being disrespectful to the president, that's what they called it, pro-Trump rally. So the Black Lives Matter people turn up and they stand there as the 
president of the Trump rally is talking and the organizer, and they got their hands in the air like this. Uh-oh, you're thinking this is going to go bad. And then the uh, leader, the MC of the pro-Trump rally does something nobody expects. He actually calls the president of Black Lives Matter to the stage and gives him the microphone. That's a drop the mic moment right there. The guy starts to speak. Initially, there are heckles. But you know what it ends up? It ends up with them locking arms as brothers and sisters, recognizing that even though they do differ on a lot of issues, maybe this idea that we have to draw a line and everybody who thinks about every issue the same as us is in here, and if you think about the issue differently, then you're out there and you're basically wrong, maybe that idea was wrong. Truly remarkable. See, whenever we think in fixed categories driven by one single issue and a position on an issue, we're forgetting that the most important thing is our position in Jesus. That's the most important thing. This idea of others being so different to us isn't as strong as we think it is. Now, there's a flip side to this, right? Thinking that those people who agree with you on this one issue actually agree with you on every issue <laughs> is also foolish. And the question is, what issue are you going to build your life on? See, this idea that everybody who thinks the same as me on, on certain issues actually thinks like me on every issue is weaker and more, the differences are more significant than you can possibly imagine. We've got to rethink this. Because the evangelical movement and fortunately, is forcing us to pick sides and pick sinners in a way that is unhelpful and it draws a line that makes people who think differently to what the evangelical movement does appear to be so different to us. And I want to say to you, no, they're not. They're people who God loves. Where do we go with this. I think what we need to recognize is that some people are going to be in different positions and take different positions on some of these topics, but they may be closer to us than we think. So, for example, did you know that not every Democrat is actually pro-choice? that there are millions and millions and millions of people who believe blue because of the social solidarity responsibility and actually are pro-life. I would dare suggest that some of you Republicans have got more in common with them than you do with people who vote red but are pro-choice. What about those people who vote red and actually do believe in the dreamer generation? Well, they can't if they're red, can they? Yeah, they can. What about those people in Black Lives Matter who actually are not against all police, just against the bad ones? What about people who are pro-police and just recognize that not every police officer racially profiles. 
See, if you listen to the culture war, then you have to take your stand on one side or the other one. And I think the wise thing to do is to refuse to do that because some choices we simply don't need to make. And I think this is where all of this goes for us in the culture war, according to this text. Basically, we're forced to realize from the example here that as long as there are only ever two sides, there'll always be a culture war. As long as there is only Jesus and the Pharisees, you're going to have to make your choice. As long as there only is ever going to be a two-party nation over here, red and blue, you're always going to have to make your choice. As long as there are politicians who need to mobilize their base, you're always going to have to make a choice. As long as there are need-based, even Christian need-based interest groups who need to raise funds, you're always going to have to make a choice, and you're always going to be forced with picking a sinner. How many of you, like me, get these need-based letters for fundraising from Christian evangelical movements who are forever painting people as villains? Am I the only one getting this? We're all getting it. Now, what I'm saying is not that this is wrong, but that this is real. And it'll always be like that. That's just the way it is. It's not wrong. It's reality. But what is wrong is, that when, is when we take our position on the basis of picking sides and pointing to the villain. That's not something Jesus ever does. And it's not something a Jesus follower ever does. It is possible to point to the truth. And we have to because the Bible is our moral and ethical authority on all issues. But sometimes we pick a choice without villainizing the other side. Why do we do that? Because the moral and ethical vision of our faith is that every person experiences the rule and the reign of God. And that is by choice, not by force. The kingdom of God does not come through enforcement like in the Islamic faith. It comes by choice. People choosing to make the rule and reign of God their priority. And if we want to navigate this culture war, it's not the right thing to do to step back. It's not the right thing to do to say, you know what? I am going to pursue peace, and I'm going to make consensus in all things, my goal and motivation, even if that means denying Jesus, the Prince of Peace. That is something to which we respond, no, we cannot. But we will say, no, we will not do this in the way of picking sides through villainizing the other side. No, no, no. So what do we do then? This is what we do. We stand in our story. This is what the man does. When he's asked to pick a side, and remember, he hasn't even chosen Jesus at this point. He basically says, I'm going to tell you what I know. And what I know is I was blind and now I see. What I know is God cares for me. That's what I know. And I think we can build off this. And we see this in the confession, right? Look at the end. The Lord said, the, then the man said, Lord, I believe and he worshiped him. 
It's about an encounter with God that enables a person to engage in the story of God in the world and to be used by God to put the world right. And I think we stand in our story by doing four things, and I'm gonna do this really quickly. Firstly, we respond in faith. To stand in our story, we always respond in faith. And that faith is to a person first, not to a belief system first. Believes, beliefs drive our action, but it's not the policies or doctrinal statements. We respond in faith to a person. Why? Because in the New Testament, faith is never forced on the masses. Faith is personal before it is communal. It is voluntary, it is never legal. The objective in dialogue must always remain worship, not enforcing the rule of law. Jesus says, the truth will set you free, but Jesus also says, I am the truth. The truth is a person before it is a dogma. We, we come back to our confession of faith in Jesus Christ. Secondly, we, as I've said, we point to a person, not to a philosophy, not to an option, not to a category. I can tell you about Laku. So I met in the square in Berlin, 1991. I was preaching. I talked to him. He's a Hindu. So much inside him wanted to come to faith in Jesus, but he just thought in categoric terms. He thought, if I become a follower of Jesus, I'm a Christian, I'm no longer a Hindu. He couldn't get past Christianity and Hinduism. I was there the next year. He didn't know this. He, he sat in his home at night and he had this vision of God telling him, go to the square. On the square in Berlin is that man that was there last year. He came to that square. I was preaching again. And he said, Jesus appeared to me. Now I want to become a follower of Jesus. Why? Because he met the person of Jesus. He didn't meet an organized system of religion. Let me tell you about Mahi. Mahi was also a Hindu. Why is this important? Hinduism can assume everything into itself, even Jesus himself, millions of gods. Mahi came to Hamburg for months and months and months and he was thinking in categoric terms. If I become a follower of Jesus, I'm no longer a Hindu. To which I responded, Mahi, become a follower of Jesus and let Jesus deal with that. Lead them to the person of Jesus because in the person of Jesus, we see the heart of God for a broken and a lost world. Secondly, prioritize people, not policies. Jesus, we served his harshest critique for those people who prioritize policy over people. That's why he didn't agree with what they were doing with the Sabbath. Man wasn't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man, Jesus said. And Jesus addresses all of these issues from within the context of his impact on weak, broken, hurting, vulnerable people. And we present Jesus' perspective in a divided nation by showing God's compassion for a broken world. And lastly, we have to be willing to accept the fact that even in a church like this, there are going to be people who think differently on issues, and that is okay. There's one thing and a few things that we will never compromise on, because that's the moral authority that comes from God's word. We'll tackle that in a future week. But unity doesn't truly happen by ignoring the reality that people think differently. As we said last week, a United States, which is made up of different people from different states, presupposes conflict and difference without making it a war. Don't make it a war. Not everything is a big deal. It's important. 
but it doesn't have to be divisive. But there is a line. And that line for us is, listen, we cannot pursue peace and desire consensus to the point where we deny the differences. We will never find peace by denying Jesus who is the Prince of Peace. And if that's where peace is found, that's not the peace that we can stand for. Jesus makes all the difference. So where do we go with this? I think where we go with this is God just working in our hearts and saying, listen, how do you view the world? How do you view America right now? Where do you stand on these important issues? Where do you stand on the dreamer question? Where do you stand on the Black Lives Matter question? Where do you stand on, on, the, on the police issues? Where do you stand on the justice issues? Where do you stand on the life issues? Where do you stand on the choice issues? I'm not saying this doesn't matter. They do matter. But what I'm saying is, as you think about your opinion, how are you viewing people who think differently from you? How are you seeing them? Are you seeing them with the love and the compassion of Jesus? Or are you prioritizing the policies and the positions over the people that God wants to reach. I'm gonna ask the band to come up and just play a song. The words in this song are very powerful. They're called For the One. And in this song, it talks about how God wants to do such a work in our own hearts that even through our smile, they will sense God's love. As you think about where you stand on many of these issues, what I wanna encourage you to do is listen to these songs and just really engage with what it means to demonstrate God's heart and God's compassion to a broken world. Listen to the words of the song.